Oh. So the the big sound that we've got tonight is um, one of the first things I wanted to mention. We have new speakers. So for everyone who was here last uh, month when we had a lot of the reverb, um, we would like to give a special shout out to Greg Reed, who has loaned us his amplification and speaker equipment. Thank you very much, Greg. Our uh, next shout out goes to our auction winners um, from the previous month, and we would like to give them a big round of applause for their support for Golden Beer Talks. And finally, before I introduce, um, have Frank come up, our beer ambassador, to talk about our beers this evening, I wanted to mention a uh, talk that is part of a series um, for the Colorado Renewable Energy Society, and it is a speech on climate change, so those of you who are interested in that topic um, that we had last time here, this is by um, Chuck Kucher. And it is Thursday, November 20th um, at 7 p.m. That's the Thursday before Thanksgiving. And that will be at the Jefferson Unitarian Church. If you are interested in any more information about that, uh, Martin Volker, right here to my right, please, uh, please ask him. Um, so with no further ado, our beer ambassador, Frank Baja. Tell us about our brews. Hello everyone on this fine November 11th. Uh, this month our featured brewery here in Golden again is Cannonball Creek Brewing at 393 North Washington, right where Washington meets Highway 93 for those of you that don't get to the north side of town. That's where they are and they generally have a crowd there um, but not so much tonight and not so much last night with the uh, cold weather. Um, but this month we have got three brews from Cannonball Creek. And the first is their Featherweight Pale Ale. And there are descriptions of this up there. Uh, the Featherweight Pale Ale is a, a pretty tasty American Pale Ale, uh, something like it was 5.3 point. I have it right here. How about 5.0% alcohol by volume? And it's a quite nice little beer. It had won a silver medal at the Great American Beer Festival last year, and it got a bronze medal this year at, at the, let's see, what was it, the Golden or the um, World Beer Cup. Uh, we also have Victorville Red, which I thought was a nice, tasty red ale. Uh, and we also have a small portion of their Black IPA. And the Black IPA, they won a gold medal at the Great American Beer Festival this year with the Black IPA. And the reason we have a small quantity of that is, well, it's sort of uh, high in alcohol at 8.3%. And um, But it's quite tasty. And in fact, uh, a few months ago, I talked about what a white IPA was, and a black IPA is another invention of American brewing, and it's actually a relatively new beer. It was first, um, I guess you might say, fully recognized in the Brewers Association uh, guidelines in 2011, but there really is some controversy as to whether it's just a variation on a strong porter or a strong stout, uh, or is it truly a new beer and there's discussions on online about this you know tradition is important in the beer industry uh, and so this is relatively new but we have a three-year tradition of serving it in tulip glasses which we didn't really have here uh, available so we were using wine glasses as a as a small stand-in um, and you know I, I went and 
was uh, trying out their beers to find good beers for all of you there. And fortunately, I, I go for small servings because they had nine beers on tap, and I tried six of them, you know, looking for the best ones. And you can see I, I normally go with two, and this time I went with three. So Cannonball Creek, they are happy to work with us, and they've got quite – and all of these beers that they had on tap, nine beers, they brewed all them themselves there. And finally – This is their logo. This is one side of their beer coaster, and that's the other side. So this is part of their logo. And does anyone recognize what that is? It's on your shirt. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm properly branded, too. That, that is a tri-clamp that is a brewer's hardware thing for all of their hoses and stuff to secure them so they're less of a tripping hazard. So a true brewer, which I'm not, I, I drink beer, but I don't brew any, um, would recognize that as a tri-clamp because I, I didn't know what that was. And in fact, I called them about 10 minutes ago and I said, what is that on, your, on the back of your coaster? It was a torture device. Yeah, well, I was conjecturing maybe it had something to do with cannons or, but anyway. And, and also Cannonball Creek, as I would think many of you would know, was formerly the name of Clear Creek because it had a lot of big round boulders in it about the size of cannonballs. All right, and with that... Well, first I want to say, Frank, thank you for your service. Not everyone would have tasted as many beers as you did for us, so thank you. So um, I am very excited to introduce our speaker tonight. His name is Mark Eberhardt. And he is a professor of material science at Colorado School of Mines in the Department of Chemistry and Geochemistry. And his, uh, he, a few interesting things to know about him. His father was actually the minister at the Rockland Church. And he said he, looked, he lived way up on Lookout Mountain, but he doesn't really quite remember that. Um, and his great-great-grandfather, I should have said he's a Colorado native, if that's not obvious from what I'm about to tell you. Um, his great-great-grandfather was Dr. Stedman. Um, who was the first doctor in Denver. And I, I said, you know, that name's kind of familiar to me, and that's because there's actually a Stedman Elementary School where he went. So I thought that was kind of a cool family connection. Tonight, he will be giving us a talk on science, energy, and the natural strategic narrative. And I think this talk is going to be one that actually, as our logo says, will expand our minds. Mark? Thank you. It's fun to be here. Uh, so th this, my whole experience here, this idea of a national strategic narrative, it's kind of a strange one for perhaps the scientists we're talking about. What happened was about, I guess it was three, four years ago, uh, I, I was attracted to this sabbatical offering. I could, go, I could go away to the Department of State for my sabbatical year and spend that year at the, at the Department of State getting being a science advisor. And I ended up at the Department of State in the Bureau of Energy Affairs. Ter terribly exciting time to be there. This is right when, uh, when Japan is making the decision to dismantle all of its nuclear power. Uh, at the same time, so are the Germans. They're making that decision to dismantle all of their nuclear power. The French are outraged, of course, because they're, they, they have 
all of their electric generation is in, or 75% of it's in, uh, in nuclear generation of power. And the Germans were saying, well, we're just going to take ours offline, but that's okay because we'll just import from, from France. Uh, and I actually witnessed the, the, the French and the Germans getting almost into fistfights over this topic. Uh, it's at the same time that we're beginning to, are, are, are realizing the fruits of fracking. And over the last five, six years, we've had this dramatic transformation in, uh, in the availability of energy. We've gone from a country that was looking outside itself and saying natural gas is a strategic resource, we have to be very careful, you can't export it, to a place where we're saying we've got to export it because the cost is so low, we've got to figure out what we're going to do with this stuff. Um, and at the same time, the United States has become what? The, the, the largest producer of, um, of energy in the world, of petrochemicals in the world, uh, more so than the Saudis, greater production than the Saudis. The Saudis now are w w watching their price just plummet because every other country has done what you'd expect it to do. The uh, Brazilians are, of course, pumping stuff out of the ocean. Uh, and so we're seeing this huge increase because as the cost goes up, it becomes feasible. The tar sands up in Canada, it becomes feasible to produce these things. And so uh, at the same time, we're, we're uh, using less energy in our cars and our automobiles and our homes and all this other stuff. So the price is falling. So the Saudis are pumping oil like crazy now, which is why the cost is going down, because they say we have to get the cost down to make these alternatives less desirable so people won't develop them. Uh, so this, it's, it's an amazing time to be involved in this. And I, I, I go to Washington with the thought that I would have something to do, and I didn't. No one at the Department of State, at least in this bureau, the Bureau of Energy Affairs, really cared about science. And this kind of amazed me. Uh, it just wasn't on their radar. It wasn't important when making decisions. And so this left me a huge amount of time to think, which is, is what I did. And so I wandered around the Department of State, which is a huge building. I never once saw Hillary. Um, but nonetheless, I wandered around the Department of State. And one day I'm passing this, this thing. Every, everything's locked. You can't get into any room, but everything outside says what they are. And they're the division or something like that uh, for counterterrorism communications. What, what is counterterrorism communications? So I made an appointment to go talk to one of these guys, and I became fascinated with it. Because what they were describing is they're trying to stop people. They're trying to change people's minds. Uh, before they become terrorists or take people who are terrorists and change their minds. And you might think the way you do this is you go to people and you say, you're wrong. Let me explain to you why you're wrong. They said, no, we have experience. That doesn't work. You tell somebody they're wrong and they believe they're right. They believe you're telling them they're wrong because you're afraid of them. So that, that's not how you go about doing it. And it began, became clear to me that, well, that's where science is right now. And, you know, I witnessed that uh, last month where we have these, these competing stories where people are saying, they're, they're saying climate change isn't happening. You have a scientist saying, no, it has to happen. You've got CO2 in the atmosphere, and you're going to increase the, the energy balance of the Earth. It has to be happening. There's just no scientific question about it. No, it's not happening. Uh, you, have, you have what? Now, in, in Congress, the head of the environmental thing it has, has written a book denying climate change. And so this same kind of thing is happening, and the question is, what can we do about it? What were these people doing in counterterrorism communications? And what is it that science can do on the other side of things? And it became apparent to me very quickly what's going on. That what they told me about was narratives. People don't think in a typical fact-based way. The way 
scientists are supposed to think. So that's, that's how scientists are supposed to think. You know, this fact implies this fact implies that fact. And we go out into public and we tell people that this fact implies this fact implies this fact. Hence, you have to change. All right? That's not how people are. People have narratives. They have stories. And in fact, there are theories of communication that say narratives are the basis for all communication. That very few people communicate in anything other than a narrative format. And I began to think about this. And if you think about the height, if, well, if you go to meetings in, in DC on energy, I'll bet you three quarters of them say what we have to do to solve the energy problem. And remember, when they're talking about the energy problem, that's the energy problem, the climate problem, and the water problem. Those are all three rolled together into one. That's not one problem. So the energy problem is all three of those. And they say, in order to solve this, we need a Manhattan project, the project to develop the nuclear weapon. Or we need an Apollo-type project, the project that went to the moon. Uh, and they're convinced of this. We need that, as if saying, OK, we're going to solve this problem is sufficient. We're going to get resources to it, and we're going to solve the problem. But what they forget about that is the Apollo project and the Manhattan Project, and for that matter, the entire, the entire emphasis in science and engineering during the Cold War, after World War II, were all wrapped around an important narrative. That is, we were not going to the moon to... That was a story of human accomplishment. We are going to the moon in this decade, and the other things too. That's what, that's what uh, Kennedy said. And it was... A, a statement of possibilities, of grandeur, of possibilities, of what we could do. And it's an amazing thing. The uh, Manhattan Project, the Manhattan Project grew out of this much bigger project during World War II. And if you look at World War II, there is very, very little question that science played a major role in uh, the victories there, not only with the development of the nuclear weapon, which even without that, we would have won World War II, but radar, um, electronics, computing, uh, cyber uh, uh, code breaking, all of these things grew out of science. And so following World War II, there was this kind of respect for what science could accomplish and what was needed to get, what we needed to get things done. And our big programs were wrapped around this amazing narrative of what, what it meant to the United States to go to the moon, what it meant to uh, develop nuclear weapons, to develop uh, cheap nuclear power, all of these things. They were wrapped around the possibilities of what science could accomplish. And it was an amazing, it was an amazing time. I remember going to, I think it was the Seattle World's Fair, but it may have been to, it may also have been Disneyland, because I was a, a very little kid. I'm not quite sure. But I think it was the Seattle World's Fair, where there were these exhibits to show me what the world was going to be like. And you went through one room and it showed illumination. It showed back in the 1850s and it showed illumination by, by, uh, by whale oil and then kerosene and then suddenly electricity. And I remember the 1930s exhibit. There were, there's this family with thousands of extension cords spread out all over the room. And then you go to the room of the future and everything is push button and wonderful and lights and all those other things. Everything was about what the world will be like. And they sold me. I mean, this is, I, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. They, it was going to be an incredible world, what the world was going to be like. Walt Disney's show, the show, The Wonderful World of Color, uh, I remember them showing things about 
automobiles in the future and highway systems in the future. And this was really going to be cool. I, would, I, I remember something about I'd get out of my car and it would go park itself. This was going to be cool. And just recently I saw something that there is a car that now goes and parks itself. But so this was going to be wonderful. And the, uh, the companies, the automobile companies, were selling the same kind of dream. It was all part of the same dream. You see the USA in your Chevrolet. And we have the, we have the shows, Route 66, with people out screaming down the highway, winded their hair. Never once did you see those guys stuck in a traffic jam. It just didn't happen. So there was this wonderful narrative of which, uh, let me just hazard a conjecture that most people brought into. That most people brought into this idea that that is what the world was going to be like. That that's, they bought into this, this vision of a future world. Now, something happened. Something changed with our opinion and our look at what science can and will do. And it started in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And we look now at what these visions are, what the narratives are they're developing around science. It's actually, in my mind, quite, quite scary. Uh, one of those visions, well, let's take the Keystone Pipeline as an example. Keystone Pipeline. This is a huge project. And I was at the State Department also at a time when they're trying to make the decision about <laughs> what they're trying to do is figure out a way not to make the decision about what to do about the Keystone Pipeline. But nonetheless, it was, it was that time while I was there. And uh, here you have these two, competing, these two competing kind of narratives going on about the pipeline. One of the narratives is that from coming from environmentalists. Uh, that is, you build that pipeline, and it's going to leak, and it's going to flood the, uh, the, the aquifers, and we're going to poison all of, all of Nebraska. It is Nebraska, isn't it? All of Nebraska. We're going to poison all of Nebraska. And, and agriculture is going to come to an end. Uh, and I guess we'll die. Um, and also, you're going to encourage more tar sand development. Tar sand development is very, very polluting. Pumps huge amounts of stuff into the, in the atmosphere. And it's going to, it's, it, we just don't want to do this. On the other hand, you have, a, you have another narrative, which is that of jobs and creating jobs. That one's not as well articulated, but it's just the immediacy of it. We need to create jobs. One of the things I learned at the Department of State was, you know, these sources of oil, like the Canadian tar sands and other sources of oil, they're very important not in this country, but worldwide in keeping the price of uh, diesel and other petrochemicals down. One thing you don't want to do if you're, in a, if you're a woman in, in say, in, in Africa, for instance, is a pregnant woman in Africa, you do not want to go into labor at night. Your chances of dying or having your child die from going into labor at night are 200% higher than in the daytime because there's no light. So there's no light to see what's going on. So you have this tremendous risk of, of death or injury simply because there is no electricity, because the cost of diesel is so high that people are paying just astronomical amounts of, of money to run diesel generators and you can't afford that. Now this is a, this is a story that doesn't get out there. When people say, we don't want that, uh, that horrible polluting petrochemical from the tar sands. We don't want that down here. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the, person, the people in, who pay a huge amount for their electricity wouldn't say, no, you do want it down because it reduces the cost of, of oil, and now I can have light at night, and uh, that way my wife won't die in, uh, in labor. 
So you have all of these competing things going on at the same time. Uh, now, how am I doing? Oh, I'm really chugging along here. <laughs> now, what is fascinating to me is that we as scientists and we as engineers do not give you, do not, we do not put out a narrative out there. That is, when I, when I talk to people, I say, okay, let us assume, let us assume, what, what do you see the world being like if we take the proper adjustment, if we make the proper adjustments to account for global climate change? What do you see the world being like? When I ask people, well, we have to, we can't drive as much. How many people would agree with that? Have to be more efficient with our automobiles. Yeah. Uh, we, we have to be more efficient with our water. Uh, yeah, we, we have to stop drive, driving SUVs. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. It's a large list of sacrifices. We have a large list of sacrifices that we have to follow in order to, to, uh, to reduce our energy usage and have some impact on climate change. As an engineer, I say, well, why? Are we so uncertain in our ability to what we have learned over 50,000 years of engineering and, and, and from the science and the stuff that we've engineered that we cannot think of alternatives that do not require one to sacrifice. In other words, I can very easily sit here and lay out a, an agenda for things that we would do which would dramatically reduce our, uh, our, the amount of, of fuel that we use in this country to, to, to use our transportation system. I could lay those out in just a few minutes, and I'll, I'll do that. Uh, and they do not require sacrifices. They require a change. They require a vision of what the future would be like. For instance, my, my favorite is the transportation. This isn't the only place, but my, my vision is transportation. As an engineer, I look at transportation. Right? When I drove in here from Denver, uh, it took me an hour to go the 15 miles from Denver. Uh, part of it's the weather, but part of it's just it's ridiculous. And there I am sitting in, a, in, in my F-150 truck. I'm a, I, I apologize. Uh, I'm sitting there in my F-150 truck with my 300 and X number of cubic inches and 500 horsepower, whatever it happens to get. I don't know. Not that much. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm crawling along at 15 miles an hour. This is an engineering system which was so over-designed for, for what it's supposed to do, it's ridiculous. And we pay just a small fortune to maintain those things, this, this immense transportation capacity which we never even exploit. We don't exploit it to its fullest. The only vision that we see out there, the only thing that anybody's offering us is to say, well, we'll convert to electricity. So we'll have cars, we'll have hybrids or fully electric cars, that's where people are going. We'll have fully electric cars now, and we will have these cars that have 600 pounds worth of batteries in each one of them, which will get the, we'll get the various odds and ends we need to make the batteries from the uh, Chinese, because mining this stuff, mining the rare earths, is incredibly polluting. So we'd rather keep the pollution over there, the Chinese, than do it here in this country. And we will, we will again, have one person sitting in a car in a 300-pound uh, uh, electric motor to pull us, pull, push us around and 600 pounds worth of batteries. And then all this other stuff to do it. As an engineer, I look at that and I go, that is stupid. That is not the way I would design a system. The way I would design a system is I would design a system that extracted energy directly from the road. 
you'd have electricity directly in the road. We've been doing this for years. It's called a trolley. It's called a three, third whale system. But I wouldn't take the individual car away from people. I'd say, you have a car, I have a car. We both have a way to click in and draw energy directly from the road. It would require a lot of construction. But we've been through construction before. We've built this highway system. We've built it over years. Why not build a highway system that has energy directly in the road? The technology we have today, we could do this. Once you do that, you couple that with the computer systems we have today, and suddenly there aren't going to be any more traffic accidents. Well, there will be a few, but we'll limit those. We'll get them down. There are none of them. Suddenly you don't need 700 pounds of structure between you and the car in front of you. You need a little bit of structure between you and the car in front of you. You don't need large batteries because all you need to do is get to and from the place where you start taking electricity out of the road. Um, and now you've got a system which gives you everything that you have right now. You have convenience. You have all the other things. And if you want to go out into the mountains, how many people were the last time you hopped into your SUV and went and stood up on a hill where you could see nobody else and you had just your skis and went pow powering down through the, through the, uh, through the powder? just like they show in the commercials. When was the last time you actually did that? So I'm sure there's somebody who's done it, but you know, you, you look at that on the commercial, you say, yeah, that's the way I should live my life. I got to go out and buy an SUV and sit in traffic. Uh, so there are, as, as an engineer, I look at it and I go, we have so many potentials around us. We have so much we have learned over 50,000 years of engineering, and particularly in the last two or 300 years. We have learned so much, and it's time to kind of trust what we've learned and say we can do it. Yes, there are problems, but we can do it. And there's, there are things that the, uh, that the public can do as well, which is demand a picture, demand a narrative. Say, this last election was just horrible. I, it, it was absolutely horrible. Just once, I wanted somebody to say, this is what I picture the, the, the United States and the world being like at the end of my term, instead of, you know, that guy's a crook. Uh, just once, I wanted to hear that, and we don't demand that of people. That is something that we have lost. That was something that in the 60s and the 70s, the 50s, the 60s, and 70s, we had this kind of optimism about what we could accomplish, and much of that optimism has evaporated for, for various good reasons, but nonetheless. Uh, so I, I see it very important that scientists and engineers, and we don't do it. I'll tell you why we don't do it, and then we'll take our break. The reason scientists and engineers don't come up with pictures, that they don't talk in narratives, is because narratives are very powerful. They can convince people of things that are wrong. Narratives, if you're a good storyteller, you can convince people of anything. Okay, so if you're a good storyteller, you can convince people of anything. And scientists recognized this long ago, and when they recognized this, they said, we, we, can't, we can't put our science in the form of a narrative, because if we do it, it will have power beyond what it should have. People will make decisions not based on whether it's right or wrong, but based on the power of the narrative. And so scientists stop doing this. And anybody who wants to get good bedtime reading before they go to bed, pick up any technical journal, okay? And read the first paragraph and you'll be asleep. Okay. Because it's boring stuff. It's really boring. And the reason is, the reason it's boring is because that's the way that scientists elected to avoid, uh, to avoid the narrative, to avoid the narrative. And they also, but at the same time, uh, did away with, lost, lost their, their, their responsibility to look at the world as it could be. 
And to me, that's a horrible thing, that the people who should be looking at the world as it should be and should be trying to tell people what the world should be should be scientists and engineers, and we don't do that. We eschewed that responsibility, and to me, that's a, that's a horrible thing. So anyhow, was that a good place to break? Okay. All righty. So what we're going to do is take about a 10-minute break, and this is a good chance to purchase your beautiful golden beer glasses from Barb. Could you wave, Barb? She has them if anyone needs gifts for the holidays. And to grab yourself another beer if you'd like one. And um, in about 10 minutes, we will pepper the speaker with our questions. Yes. Sounds good. People, we are ready to start asking questions. Are you ready to answer questions? I'm ready to answer questions. All right. Somebody's got questions. Fire them at me. Yeah. Well, uh, there, are, there is a, a community of people that have tried to develop a narrative. They haven't been listened to because they don't have the political power, the economic power. So I guess my question is, how do we change all this? In other words, how do we develop some kind of a narrative on a national scale? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I was I was involved with a group. Can you paraphrase it, please? Nobody could oh, so the question was that there are people out there. I mean, there are a group of people, many groups of people, are saying, "How do we develop a narrative?" And in fact, when I was in D.C., uh, there were groups of people who began to form. This was largely what I summarized here was was my uh, Jefferson Science talk that I gave out there at the Department of State, and. Uh, there are a group of people who came to me later and said, we've been thinking about this. We've been thinking about this in the White House Office of Scientific Research. We've been thinking about this over at DOE. We've been thinking about this over there. How do we do this? And, uh, and this, this was an issue. How, how do we do it? Uh, and, and I can answer simply, what, what, I don't know. Um, that, that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Uh, now, part of the reason is, part of the reason I believe this to be the case is because our faith in science has so dramatically changed that people aren't willing to go there. For instance, when we talk about climate change, even though this is something they're discussing in Washington, they're discussing the idea of, of Earth systems engineering. That is, I mean, I'm sure people have heard about it. We want to put iron into the ocean in order to get the algae to bloom. If the algae blooms, it'll pull in more uh, carbon dioxide, pulls in more carbon dioxide. We can explore that. Uh, we're melting the ice cap. Could we put, uh, could we float white biodegradable things on the ocean in order to reflect more light out from the ocean? Can we actually engineer the climate? And they're talking about this in Washington. And the opinion is, you, you take these to the White House and they say, we don't want to go there. We don't want to go there because people will be so uh, outraged by the potential things that we could do wrong that it would, it would, it would bury my administration. It would, it would lead to the end of everything. I would lose all the environmentalists. I would lose everything else. So our, the, the faith in science has largely been diminished, has largely been decreased from what it was at its height, which was following World War II and in the, in the 60s. I think that's when it was at its height, when we were looking at all the possibilities of things that could be done. What has taken this back, which what has caused us, what has caused us to lose our faith in science is things like DDT, so pesticides, 
even though it turns out that you know much of what was written about in in uh, in Silent Spring was not exactly correct. Uh, so there's really no indication of that. But nonetheless, so there's there's things like that that have led people to be very cautious about technology, and perhaps rightly so. Uh, I think one of the ways we recover our ability to imagine what's going on and our ability to do this is we one of the classes we teach up at School of Minds is called Nature and Human Values, which uh, I have sat in on and watched this. And it is alarming to me that we talk about the things that engineers do wrong. So nuclear weapons, that's something engineers did wrong. We never talk about the things we did right. We've had great triumphs. We've had tremendous triumphs over the last 20 years. One of them was the ozone hole. People remember we were putting we were putting chlorofluorocarbons in everything in spray cans, you know, spray your hair. Chlorofluorocarbons went out into the atmosphere. The chlorine degraded the uh, ozone hole, degraded the ozone, and made an ozone hole. And we're looking at oh, mankind's being is going to be, you know, radiated to death. We're all going to die of skin cancer. Cook away. The the chemical companies looked at this and said, this is really happening. This is not something we can question. This is really honest to God happening. We can replace these compounds. We don't know how we're going to do it, but we can do it. We have faith in what we do as a, as a society, as a company. And we have faith in our science. And they, they did it. We turned the situation around. There's some indications that there's something still going on. But nonetheless, we turned the situation around in a matter of a few years. This is amazing. Very few people talk about this. My young students coming in know nothing about this. They know nothing about the triumphs of science. One that amazes me is Three Mile Island. How many people think Three Mile Island was a disaster? Three, Three Mile Island was, in my opinion, an amazing engineering success. You look at that and people said, what would happen if we had a core meltdown? We need a containment system. They built a containment system. The containment system worked. This was amazing. And instead of saying, yeah, we've got some things wrong, we said, ah, everything's wrong. We've got to back off that. Uh, the example I love to use is the first, the first jet passenger uh, aircraft, the Comet, in the 19, late 1950s was the first uh, jet passenger aircraft. And these things were going up. They flew successfully for a few months, and then they started crashing left and right coming down. Boom, 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 boom. Now, we could have done a couple of things then. We could have said, man was not meant to fly. Okay? Not meant to fly in jets, perhaps. I don't know. So let's stop. Or we could figure out what we did wrong. We figured out what we did wrong. We put in square windows instead of round windows. That's all it was. The jet was crashing because the windows were square. They had corners instead of nice round windows. And you look at all the jets you're on now, don't get on one square window. Okay? Uh, and we found out what we did wrong and we fixed it. That's what engineering is all about. Remember the first pyramids they built didn't stay up. They fell down. We have archaeological evidence. Look, that thing fell down. Luckily, the Egyptians didn't say, man wasn't meant to build pyramids. They went on and built more pyramids and got better and finally came up with the design that worked. Same thing's going on now. And what we need, what, the, what, what I believe we need to do is somehow convince the public at large that we can do these things in a way, that we can learn from our mistakes, 
my vision of this is that we are children without any kind of role models. That is, technologically, we're children that have no role models. And so we're trying to grow up and become adults without having anybody to look to. Well, guess what kids do? Everybody knows kids make mistakes, right? They do. I know I did. Maybe you guys didn't. Uh, but kids make mistakes. Now, you can either punish them for it, or you can say, let's figure out what goes on so you won't do that again. And then you go up and you become adults. And what we as a society have to do is become adults. We have to have faith that we will learn from our mistakes and that we can correct these. And I think that much of what goes on now with the, with the finger pointing, with Deepwater Horizons, for instance, you know, that's just that's an incredible story of, of denial of instead of, instead of um, uh, BP acting like an adult and saying, yeah, there's a problem here, let's fix it and figure out what, what we did wrong and, and not do it again, they said, oh, no, we're going to hide this, we're not going to tell you what's going on. And I think that's part of a culture where they say, we, we come off better if we hide it uh, because we're, what we're looking at is incredible punishment instead of, no, oh, no, we're all in this together, let's figure out what you did wrong, let's fix it, let's recognize that mistakes happen and go from there. So, I, I really didn't answer your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes? Well, this might not be a question, but don't you think the field of medicine might in some ways be a role model? Uh, because there is a lot of acceptance of mistakes and trial and error. Trials, trials, all the time. When you say trials. I mean medical trials. Yes. Yeah, you I know, I, I absolutely, you are absolutely right. And what scares scares me to death is when I sit there and I watch television at night now and every fourth commercial is are you suffering from this mistake due to some some drug company and it gets longer and longer and longer and if they make mistakes they'll pay for it that scares me because medicine was a place where the idea was yeah let's look at the possibilities do you realize today that if you were trying to if you were trying to do the trials for the polio vaccine you would not be allowed to do it. So the trials that were done for the polio vaccine that prevented people of my age from getting polio, uh, those would not be allowed today. It would take years and years and years and years to get through that process. So what's happened between then and now? Then we looked at people like Salk as gods, and you know, and I'll, I'll do whatever it has to do because we're all in this together and you have my interest at heart. Today we look at those same drug companies as extortionists who are trying to extort money from us, and that may be true, uh, but, but nonetheless, our view has just, has just gone from one end to another, from trusting and hopeful to distrustful and suspicious. And that's the heart of things. What's going on that has allowed that to happen, and how do we counter that? And again, I'm going to come back and say a large part of that lies in scientists and engineers who say that's not my job. I think about our speaker last month, great talk, but he didn't come back and say, let me paint the world of what the world's going to look like if we deal with, uh, with global warming. Here's what we need to deal with. And I, I still look at the um, uh, Al Gore, the Al Gore movie, Inconvenient Truth. Great. Uh, that was the best PowerPoint presentation I've ever seen in my life. Okay. He, I wish I had those skills. You know, he never once looked at his PowerPoint slides, and, but he knew exactly what was going on behind him. Just amazing PowerPoint. But the pictures he showed, he said, doom and gloom if we don't do this. What are you going to do? 
I don't want to give up my car. I love my car. I don't want to, I don't want to suffer without water. I like watering my plants. What, give me a picture that's something other than we're all going to die if we don't do what you say. And that's the job of the engineer. It's what an engineer does is, we got a problem, we can, fix it. we can fix it. Houston, we got a problem here, they still got back. So I really look at scientists and engineers and say, you have screwed up, you have, you have, you have eschewed your public responsibility. My belief, yeah. So you talk, your idea of narrative mm -hmm. really makes a lot of sense. I was kind of David Snowden, the knowledge management that really focuses on storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, what's the scientific community, how do we change the scientific community? If you think about, for example, adults learn less than 10 minute presentation. We, we typically make at conferences 20 to 30 minute presentations. We write papers and journals that no one really reads. Mm -hmm. So what's the scientific community? How, how do you say, take this narrative, how do we use it? And how do we change the scientific community to change the world? Yeah, great, great question. We're rewarded for doing that stuff. We are rewarded for doing that. NSF wants you to publish papers, and publish papers requires that you, you submit to a particular format. In your journal, you get, you get promotion and tenure and all, all the other things for, for complying with that. We should be pushing our scientific community to do more than that. That is not your responsibility. For instance, we mentioned medical fields. The idea of a doctor going over to, uh, to Liberia and, and, and working with, working with uh, doctors without borders and fighting Ebola, yeah, they do that all of their own. Where are those same programs that reward scientists and engineers for thinking more broadly? We do lip service to this, but there's no real reward. And that comes from the National Academy of Sciences has the, has the ability to start pushing that. The NSF has the ability to start pushing that and giving rewards for people who actually uh, are communicating in a real way with, uh, with the public. And they don't do it. And they don't do it because it's so historically bred. You know, that's the way I grew up. I read those dumb papers, so I'm going to write like that. Yes? Oh, I think science fiction is a wonderful form of narrative, uh, and some people do it better than others. <laughs> some of it is, in fact, science fiction. Some of it is fictional science. I really like the guys who write fictional science. They say, let's, let's take something. Isaac Asimov, amazing. So now, it's important to take those people, those, those great scientists uh, like Asimov, and recognize that they were... Uh, They did not achieve the scientific success that they deserved, Carl Sagan, simply because they engaged in this process that was considered unscientific. So they engaged in this process so they did not receive. Carl Sagan never made it into the National Academy of Sciences. Absolute crime. Absolute crime. Because his, his peers looked at him and said, you know, you're not, you're not a real scientist because you actually talk to people. So, and they, under, they understand you, too, so you can't be a scientist. Yes? Can you identify a moment in history or a decade in history where that paradigm shifted? It hasn't been that long. 
No, it hasn't. It hasn't. So you have to realize we have not been a scientific society for very long. We have been an engineering society for over 50,000 years. Uh, we have not been scientists for that long. I, I believe the start of science and engineering as a combined discipline began in the mid-1800s with the development of thermodynamics. And people were doing that to explain the French and the English were in mad competition to see who could develop the best steam engines. Because they realized that steam engines were the key to, to success, to dominance. And Carnot actually wrote a thing and he said, if we want to beat, if we want to beat the, uh, the English, we have to develop better steam engines. And the way to do that is through science. So this is when I see that the whole process began. And it began to pay off during World War II. There's just no question that that was the, and it, it's sad that it was during a, a war that we begin to realize the power of science. The actual now, the actual process by which all of a sudden the, the thing flipped was with the environmental movement. And not, that's not to say the environmental movement was bad, but the environmental movement began to point out that there were certain problems with, with unconstrained science, unconstrained science, unconstrained engineering. And they began to point that out. And the response to that was, oh, we have to now, we have to now put a muzzle on science. We have to control it because it's out of control. Instead of doing what I believe we should have done and said, no, let us make science responsible to itself. Let us do this. Instead of the Environmental Protection Agency, in, in my mind, has done more, more damage to science because what they did is they put the companies on one side and the, the environment on the other, and it's, you will be fined. You will be fined if you do this. If you cause problems, you will be fined. Well, what do you do? I'm going to cover my problems up. Instead of saying, you know, we understand that you operate, that we cannot have a modern society without these companies, we, we really cannot just say, DuPont, go away. I mean, I'm sorry, it won't happen. We can't say Monsanto, go away. They make much of what we see in the world today possible. We couldn't have seven billion people on this planet without Monsanto. It's just, that's the way it is. So instead of recognizing us as all in the same boat together, we've got little factions in the lifeboat. And we're saying, you have to be controlled, you have to be controlled, you have to be controlled. In some way, we've got to develop a society where all of these factions say, we're all in this together. Monsanto has to flourish, but so do the people who have to flourish. And when you make a mistake, it's not your mistake per se. We're not going to punish you per se. Uh, my, my analogy for this is you realize that all the organs in our body are in competition for energy and resources and all this other stuff. It would be very bad if our gut got together with our heart and said, don't give the brain anymore because it uses too much. Okay? And that's basically what we're doing now. We're, we're putting this competition together. Uh, and, and we need to come up with a way to do around that. We have to visualize this world as, as one, one society. And if I knew how to do it, I would, be a, I would be a much more important person than I am. Yes? Do you feel that there's an intersection between what you're saying has uh, changed the way science is perceived and our education system has changed over the years? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, <laughs> uh, I was talking about, so if you were to go back into the 60s and 70s and you were asked people to, to name uh, an important scientist, an important engineer, an important physician, you know, they would mention Salk and these other people. These people ranked up, about, uh, ranked up there in the top 10. There were people who ranked up there in the top 10 uh, most respected people in the United States and that kind of thing. So you'd find, find scientists, you'd find engineers there. When you ask that question now, well, LeBron James is up there number one, okay? Peyton Manning does real well, particularly in Denver. 
Uh, so the whole attitude of to what do people want to be? Uh, what do we reward them from? To my mind, one of the most horrible images on television is uh, Big Bang Theory. Because this portrays, this, who would want to be Sheldon? I mean, come on, who would want to be Sheldon? Uh, brilliant person, you know, maybe a Nobel laureate, but who would want to be him? Well, no, no kid in their right mind is going to say, I want to be Sheldon Leonard, or Sheldon whatever his name is. Uh, Cooper. I want to be Sheldon Cooper. Uh, somehow, but back in the day, during back in the 60s, people said, I want to be an astronaut. They thought astronauts were scientists. It doesn't matter that they weren't. They thought they were. And so that was the time when we had hero worship of, of scientists. Don't have that anymore. That's scary. One more question. Yeah. So my broad narrative of the future, my broad narrative of the future is this idea that we are, that we are children who, and mistakes will happen and, and that kind of thing. I think as individual scientists and engineers, we can insist on at least forming an image in our own minds of what we want the world to be like. That is, we don't work on a science problem or an engineering problem without simultaneously saying, what what do I vision the world being like? What do I want it to be like? And when we have an opportunity, we communicate that sense of hopefulness, of the ideas that we can get there, that these are the things we vision for the world. Just we communicate that to other people. So it's not just, yeah, I'm working on uh, you know, XYZ. I'm working on this which is going to, going to make this better, and this is what I envision it happening, and this is the world I have. And so we look at the world with a very positive attitude. Some form of enthusiasm, positive, because we do have, we have gained this amazing knowledge which our species has passed on from, from generation to generation, this amazing set of knowledge, and it would be so horrible not to, to turn around and say, we can now use that to make the world we're in today better. And so that's the philosophy. I like, look, we have something that no other generation has had, and we will have more in the next generation because this knowledge goes with us. We don't lose that from generation to generation. Okay? All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much. That was fascinating. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming out on this cold night. Please go home safely, and we'll see you next month. Um, briefly, next month, we have a pretty neat speaker. Um, the Orion... Aiden, help me out. The Orion spacecraft is launching in Florida on December, I think, 4th, and it was partially built here in Colorado, and we actually have one of the engineers that worked on that coming to talk to us and tell us how the launch went. So I think it's going to be a pretty interesting talk in December. We'll see everybody then.